Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website. Uh, For those in-house, we would ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we, of course, will post the program on our Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Introducing our special guest and leading our program is Tom Spohr. Mr. Spohr is director of our Center for National Defense in the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. Prior to joining us here in 2016, he served for over 36 years in the U.S. Army, attaining the rank of lieutenant general. Among his previous and most recent assignments, he was director of the Army Office of Business Transformation, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation at the headquarters of the Army, as well as Deputy Commanding General Support for United States Forces in Iraq. Please join me in welcoming Tom Spohr. Tom? Well, good morning, everybody, and and thanks for joining us. What a a great day, and it's a real treat for me to be able to welcome Mr. Patrick O'Donnell to Heritage to speak about his most recent book, The Unknowns, The Untold Story of America's unknown soldier, and World War I's most decorated heroes who brought him home. Mr. O'Donnell is a best-selling American author who has written 11 books on military history. He received the Kobe Circle Award for Outstanding Military History for his best-selling book, Beyond Valor. O'Donnell's books have been chosen as main or alternate selections of the Book of the Month, History, and Military History Book Clubs. Interestingly, uh, at least to me, as an unpaid volunteer combat historian, O'Donnell spent three months in Iraq in uniform and conducted oral histories of U.S. troops in battle. On a later tour to Iraq, he also served as a war correspondent for Men's Journal and Fox News. His writing has also appeared in Military History Quarterly, World War II Magazine, and a number of well-known blogs. As an expert on World War II espionage, special operations, and counterinsurgency, Mr. O'Donnell has provided historical consulting for DreamWorks' award-winning miniseries Band of Brothers and for scores of documentaries produced by the BBC, the History Channel, and Fox News. His book is extraordinarily gripping and informative. Mr. O'Donnell is going to speak for uh, some amount of time, then he'll be uh, happy to take your questions, and finally... Uh, after the formal event is concluded, he'd be happy to sign uh, books that you might have or might have purchased. They're available in the lobby for $25. And so, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. O'Donnell. Thank you. 
Thank you for the introduction, General. And it's an honor and a pleasure to be back at Heritage, one of my favorite places to speak. Um, I've written 11 books on military history from the Revolution all the way to the Battle of Fallujah, where I was a combat historian, as the General mentioned. Every one of the books that I've written has found me, and I don't mean that in a cliche manner. Uh, you know, looking at the Battle of Fallujah, for instance, I ended up with the the platoon, a Marine platoon that had the most casualties in the Battle of Fallujah and fought house to house with them. When I came back, I was joined. I asked my parents not to come to Camp Pendleton, and I didn't have a ride to the train station, but certainly the, the story then found me again where the men of George Company 3-1 from Korea asked if I needed a ride to the train station. And then they said, oh, by the way, we held a key hill at the Chosen Reservoir against an entire Chinese regiment against all odds. <laughs> Immediately, my curiosity was piqued, and I wanted to know more, and that became the book Give Me Tomorrow. The latest book when I came to Heritage was called Washington's Immortals, and Washington's Immortals was was found by accident when I was with the uh, battalion commander I was with in Iraq. We were going on a battlefield tour in Brooklyn. We're going, uh, first went to um, Greenwood Cemetery where the battle begins. And we walked down the hills of Greenwood into the alleys of Brooklyn and found a rusted old sign that said, here lie 256 Continental Soldiers, Maryland heroes. Inside of Brooklyn, near that sign is a mass grave. It represents an American Thermopylae where these men saved the United States. I wanted to know the backstory behind that that sign. It was history in plain sight, just like the unknowns. That book found me when the battalion commander in Iraq asked me to give them a battlefield tour of Normandy. We went to first Normandy where, where I took them through the, the, the amazing battlefields and drop zones of the 82nd Airborne at Lafayette Bridge. We went to St. Mary Glees. We went to Point de Hoc, where the Rangers scaled 90-foot cliffs. In and around the battlefields of Normandy, I took the men that I was with in Fallujah, and then we went back to the hallowed ground of Bella Wood. And this, it, uh, exactly 100 years ago to this day, the Battle of Bella Wood raged. And it was here that the Marine Corps and the 2nd Division, which was Army, and there was the, the division included the 4th Brigade, which was Marines, and the 3rd Brigade, which was Army, as well as many other units, they they stopped an entire German drive at Paris that summer at Bella Wood, 100 years ago this day. As we walked around the shell craters of Bella Wood, the scars of war are still very present in Bella Wood. The trees themselves still contain mustard gas shells from the battle. As we walked around, the the two generations met. It was my generation in Fallujah, and then it was the generation from World War One. And at Hill 142, Ernest A. Jansen, otherwise known as Charles Hoffman, I'll get into that story later, um, seized Hill 142 along with George Hamilton and the 49th Company, as well as several other companies of Marines. It was the first offensive action at Bella Wood. They had to charge across a wheat field under direct machine gun fire. Many of their ranks were, were depleted. Many men fell as they went across the wheat. Jansen and Hamilton somehow made it to the top of 142. They, they drove off the elements of a battalion of Germans. This is an incredible story. 
But they then knew that they had to brace for a counterattack. So they dug in as, as, as good as they could with bayonets and their helmets, and they braced for the inevitable counterattack. They knew it, which would come. German potato mashers sort of sounded that counterattack. And then out of the corner of his eye, Ernest Jansen saw about 15 Stahlheim camouflaged helmets. These are German helmets that were creeping up on the side of the hill, and they were about to set up five machine guns, which would sweep the entire hill. He let out a, a blood-curdling cry, and with his fixed bayonet, was able to disrupt these five machine guns that were about to sweep the hill, and maybe even change the course of the battle. At this point, I found out that Jansen was the first Medal of Honor recipient for the Marine Corps in the Great War, but he was also a body bearer for the unknown soldier. At that point, I knew that the unknowns had found me. I wanted to know who the other eight men were, or a total of eight men, and who, you know, what's the story behind the unknown soldier? What I found is it was history literally hidden in plain sight. The story of the tomb has hardly ever been told. This book really gets into the story of the selection, the process, and it's also a very cinematic look at World War I. The men that General Pershing chose to be the body bearers were chosen to tell the story of the American Expeditionary Forces in World War I. He chose these men specifically for their stories to tell the larger story of the war. It's the story of, of each branch of service. It's the story of the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. But in within those branches, it also tells the story of the combat specializations within each. It tells the story of combat engineers. This is not the guys that uh, build things. It's the people that blow things up. Or in the case of Thomas Saunders, body bearer Thomas Saunders, his job was to snip the wire and to breach a hole in the wire. This is a suicide mission, to go out in front of the into no man's land with just a pair of wire cutters and cut a hole through the wire so that the advancing infantry could, could breach the wire. And we're not talking about just this tiny little fence. This is mountains of barbed wire that he had to go through under direct fire, under artillery fire, and under machine gun fire, somehow accomplishing his mission. It's a story of mounted troops, believe it or not, in France. The United States had cavalry. And this is the story of, of Harry Taylor, who I'll talk about a little bit later. It's a remarkable story of sort of a mounted troop, but really it's also the story of of a suicide mission as well, where his his unit is is nearly annihilated at a place called the Hindenburg Line and the Meuse Argonne Offensive. It's the story of naval guards. Um, one of the body bearers was a was with the navy. He was a naval guard, and he his job was to guard merchant ships with his deck gun and his crew. It's it's also the story of the field artillery, the heavy guns, the rail guns. I mean, this is this is sort of forgotten. World War One, in my view, it's the hundredth anniversary and hardly anybody knows about it. It's a forgotten war, it's a forgotten generation. It's the reason why I wrote the unknowns. All of these men eventually come together to bring back the remains of the unknown soldier. This book also tells that story of the selection process, as well as the ceremony, which took place right here in Washington, D.C. on in November 1921. But the heart of this book 
is the stories. The stories are the stories. And these are stories that each could be, in my opinion, a movie. They're extraordinary. They're interesting. They're, they're compelling. I mean, it's, I've written seven books on World War, World War II, but I found that the Great War was even more compelling in many ways. And I think my, one of my favorite stories is the story that starts out this book. It's about James Delaney, the body bearer, who's with the U.S. Navy. And Delaney is this 18, he begins his service at 18 years old. His body is inked with tattoos on the ships that he served with. He's a career man, but he's a gunner's mate in 1917. And he's given a crew of 15 men. They're known as guards, naval guards. And this, in 19, in 1917, even before the war began, President Wilson decided to arm merchant ships to somehow mitigate the U-boat menace that had been sinking American ships even before we declared war. So these merchant ships were armed. One of the crews included James Delaney and his 15-man complement. They had five-inch guns, possibly a gun that was made right here in the Washington Navy Yard where they had a manufacturing facility. It was bolted on the uh, SS Campana merchant ship. And for the most part, the first few months of the voyage of the SS Campana was routine. They had... Um, they had made their way to France. They were picking up some supplies. They were on their way to Spain to pick up more cargo and eventually make their way back to the United States. It's in the Bay of Biscay that things really start to change for James Delaney and this 15-man crew. A submarine's torpedo narrowly misses the ship. And then within minutes, they, they hear the sound of gunfire. The deck gun on board the U-boat is starting to shell the SS Campana. Delaney and his men immediately go to their gun stations and they begin to return fire. And what ensues is several, a multi-hour long chase between the U-boat and the merchant ship. And the merchant ship is trying to outrun the U-boat, but believe it or not, the U-boat on the surface is quite rather fast. And the, the U-boat is, is manned, is captained by an extraordinary captain who's who um, has sunk over nearly 40 ships at this point. He's re approaching what's known as ace status, which is about 50 ships. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He stays out of the range of the Campana's deck guns, but he moves himself in exactly the range he needs to, where his 105-millimeter gun on board the deck of the of U-boat 61 begins to fire at the Campana. And there's a literally a race and a firefight that ensues for the next two hours. James Delaney's men are, um, you know, are, are so, are feeding ammunition into the gun so quickly that their eardrums begin to bleed and they're, they start to, their, their eyesight is, is, is affected as they're, as they're firing so many rounds. But eventually the U-boat scores some hits and James Delaney's crew is down to 10 rounds of ammunition and they are, they're in a dilemma. What do they do? Do they go down with the ship? Do they continue to keep firing? The, um, the captain of the ship, Captain Oliver, who's with the, who's from New York City, decides that his men and James Delaney are more important than the ship. And he strikes their colors and they decide to surrender their vessel. And at this point, the U-boat isn't quite sure if they're going to really surrender or not because there's something known as a Q ship. And these are actually merchant ships that are armed that are armed raiders that are 
their their guns are disguised behind uh, boxes and such. So he is not sure if this is a feint. The captain of the U-boat is not sure if it's a feint or not. And he decides to continue to push forward with the U-boat. And as Delaney and his men are in these small rowboats, they, the U-boat literally um, almost hits them as it goes towards the merchant ship. And they continue to fire on the merchant ship. And at that point, um, they decide to board the, the, the U-boat's crew decides to board the merchant ship and um, they seize anything of value, but they also go after food. Um, the, the, the book goes into what life is like on a U-boat and it's really a pretty dirty and hazardous job. They, uh, the, 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 it's so horrendous, in fact, that literally there's U-boat sweat inside the boat and the grease from the engines and the diesel and everything else gets into everything, your clothes and all and such, your food. And the men, the U-boat um, crew, not only looks for food, but they also look for soap, and they try to clean themselves off. And they they captured uh, Delaney and six men of the Campana, and they put him on board the, the U-boat. And if you've ever seen the movie Das Boat, this is an American Das Boat in World War One. The experience is incredible. They go through um, minefields. They're depth charged, and they the, the captain even allows Delaney to look through the periscope as they're about to sink an Allied ship. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary story of the undersea war through American an American's eyes, and this book covers a story of not only the Americans, but I unearthed the German story too, because Captain Diekmann spoke perfect English. And these men didn't develop a friendship, but they developed a mutual respect. And that interaction and story is captured in the unknowns. And it's an extraordinary story. And I won't go through all of the details, but that is part of what's in the unknowns. The book is also about the 49th Company. This is Jansen's Company of Marines. This is a band of brothers on the 49th Company, and it begins at the Battle of Bella Water. It actually begins a little bit earlier in March when the, the 49th and the 5th Marines and 6th Marines, which are part of the, the two regiments that the Marine Corps sends to France, fight in and around the trenches at Verdun. And, I mean, they get a taste of trench warfare. They they feel the, you know, the mud and the, the rain that's in these trenches the rats that are the size of a, a, a groundhog. Um, their, their bodies are covered with lice in many cases for weeks on end because they are not able to change their uniforms. This is a story about human endurance and, and hardship in many ways. And it's about people that are unprepared. They're just regular Americans, but they're so, this is a generation that is a forgotten generation. But it's much like the World War II generation in many ways. It's, these are individuals that are hardened, that are able to overcome and adapt. They're given horrendous tactics and training at the beginning of the war, but they adapt. And they adapt from trench warfare to the American way of war and a modern military. It's That's an, an another story that's woven into this book. Following the 49th Company, though, this band of brothers, which includes Jansen, and and many of the the men in the unit, which um, George Hamilton, whose father is a uh, a reporter here in Washington D.C., an editor, as well as other um, other men that are from this area, 
as well as uh, individuals from multiple countries. They fight in the 49th. They're at Bella Wood. They're at a place called Soissons. It's another forgotten aspect of World War One, where literally the after Bella Wood, the, Bella Wood is a turning point. They stop the German drive towards Paris. It's the last time, it's one of the last times that the Germans really go on the offensive. And at Soissons, the Allies go on the offensive, and they turn back the Germans, and they start to retreat back towards what's known as the Hindenburg Line, their fixed fortifications, where they started their offensive in the beginning of, of 1918. And it's here that Soissons and Harry, um, some of the men in the book, the field artillery, all interact with each member of the book. Uh, combat engineers are involved. But the 49th keeps fighting through these battles. And I think the, the one that I'd, I'd like, the, the battle that I think I, that is the, the Bella, the, the Bella Wood, it's a little more than Bella Wood. It's the forgotten story of the Marine Corps in World War One. It's a, it's a story of a place called Blancmont Ridge. And this is in October. The French army asked, um, General Pershing if they can have the second division. To, to hit a fortification known as Blancmont Ridge. And this is the guns in Navarone of the Western Front. It's one of the toughest positions of the Western Front. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, Saving Private Ryan, it's the opening scene. These, they're in bunkers and fixed positions. There's artillery that's in these bunkers. There's machine guns everywhere with interlocking fields of fire. There's barbed wire all over the place. The men have to cross an open field, an open ground of over a mile. And for three and a half years, the French army had tried to take Blancmont. And they've, they sustained tens of thousands of casualties. The bodies literally littered the area in front of Blancmont Ridge. There were scores of bones and skeletons. These men, initially, the French army, the day, days earlier, tried to take the ridge, and they were blunted once again. And the remains of that attack lay in front of them. Some of the trenches that they had, that they needed to jump off from had to be cleared. So Jansen's, the men of the 49th company, as well as the other body bearers and the man that actually selected the unknown soldier, um, Edward F. Younger, who's with the 9th Infantry Regiment of the second division, whose story I interweave in this entire book also was there. And they have to, to clear the trenches in front of the position, they see a phalanx of Frenchmen that tried to, to charge into the teeth of these German defenses, and they're literally cut down in this this an arrowhead position. At the very tip of the arrowhead is a Frenchman that has a massive beard, and his eyes are wide open, and his, his bayonet is literally pointed at the German defenses as he, that he tried to take. They climb over the bodies of these Frenchmen, and they continue to advance. Many of the uh, men of the 49th, as well as the Marines and the 2nd Division Army personnel, are cut down as they go through this open ground. But remarkably, they take the ridge on the first day. It's it's an extraordinary story. The French are on, are astounded. They consider it one of the greatest feats of the of 1918. Um, seizing this this high ground, this this impenetrable position, they take the position, and then they they charge into another valley, and there's the Hindenburg on the in the distance line as well. Another element of it, 
And as they cross into this valley, they're literally cut to pieces. And it's it's one of the bloodiest days in the Marine Corps. Bella Wood, on June 6, 1918, the, the forgotten D-Day, was a was the bloodiest day of the of the entire Marine Corps history up until that point. Some history suggests that that the bloodiest day may have actually been later on as well in October uh, 1918 at Blanc Blanc Ridge as these men push into this this valley, which is dubbed the box, and it's a box of death. Literally, artillery rounds come in. The men are counterattacked on multiple sides, three sides by the Germans as they try to take a village, which includes a series of uh, tombstones, cemetery that's dug in with positions, and they're stopped. Um, Thomas Saunders, who's a Native American, who's a body bearer in the book, is these Native Americans were considered, uh, there were, it was many of the stereotypes of the day were applied to them. They were looked at as indestructible warriors. They were pushed into the position. He was a scout as well, and he was pushed up front with his wire cutters to try to breach the hole, a, a, a hole in the wire there at, um, in front of Blancmont Ridge at Sant Antenne. Um, and they, he, he makes his way into the cemetery. He gets that far and he's even decorated, uh, during that day. But the, um, the Marines and the Army of the Second Division accomplished, accomplished their objectives and they breached the, the position at, at Blancmont Ridge. These are some of the stories that are in the book. The, the, um, all of these men, though, come together in November of 1921 at the Washington Navy Yard. But a year before that, um, the process for the unknown soldier begins. And America in 1920 didn't have an unknown soldier. This was an idea that was born in Europe the French were the first to have an unknown soldier to honor a single, a single soldier that was unknown that represented all the sacrifices of those who had fallen in battle, and it was followed by the United Kingdom, and then here in the United States there were about twenty-two unknown, twenty-two hundred unknown Americans that had fallen in France that had not been identified. The army had hoped that all of those bodies could be identified and that there wouldn't be a need for an unknown soldier. But Marie Maloney, who was an editor of a popular uh, women's magazine, kind of the mademoiselle of its day, um, the delineator, wrote a letter to the War Department and said, look, we need to have an unknown, unknown soldier for America that represents who we are as Americans, why we fight. And she makes a very compelling case and literally starts a movement. The press in the United States picks up on the story, and it it goes viral. And a young congressman, Hamilton Fish, from New York City, who fought in a unit known as the Harlem Hellfighters, and these were these were largely uh, this is largely an African American and Puerto Rican American unit from Harlem that fought in the trenches in France very valiantly. It was led by a white officers. Uh, due to segregation and racism, and he was one of those officers, but he saw a need to honor his men that had fought in France, and he championed the idea of an unknown soldier. He gets the bill through Congress. President Wilson signs it into law, and at that point, it's already 1921. It's the fall of 1921, 
And the United States has to select an unknown. From the four major cemeteries in France, where the battles, some of our most epic battles raged, at Bella Wood, for instance, at San Mihel, at the Meuse Argonne, and later in the Psalm, four unknown soldiers were removed from their graves of the 2200. The bodies were carefully checked to make sure there were no dog tags, diaries, letters, anything that identified them. The graves registration cards of the location of these bodies was then burned, and the four bodies were then moved to Chalon, France, in October 1921. And at this point, there's a ceremony. The French come to Chalon. There's an honor guard of hardened veterans that had fought in the French army, the grunts that had been there. They, they line up. The, the citizens of Chalon are there. There's many officials. The United States Army sends um, some of the men that had been fighting in France, including Edward Younger, who had distinguished himself in the second division at Mont Blanc Ridge. He, would, he was heavily wounded. He was very severely wounded. Blanc Blanc. And a small guard of six, six men um, help um, in the ceremony. And at that night, a general officer was going to, with the United States Army, was going to select the unknown soldier. The French came up to us and said, no, we used an enlisted man. And literally that night, the entire ceremony was changed. And Edward Younger, the men that were there, were interviewed. And Edward Younger, according to the records, had the best service record. He didn't, he wasn't highly decorated, but he had been wounded twice and he'd been through the hell of the trenches. He's, he was a stereotypical doughboy. He was a grunt. Perfect for the choice. And that morning, he was given this awesome responsibility of selecting the unknown soldier. And he realized how, how, how important this was. And he was given a, a bouquet of roses and told to select from the four flag-draped caskets. The book includes Younger's handwritten notes and typewritten notes of the moment. And for the first time, it's told. He talks about how as he, he, he went into the room and how the flag was sublime. That's the words he used. The American flag was sublime. Chopin's funeral dirge was playing in the background. The floor was little, littered with white petals as he walked in between the caskets. He wasn't sure who to select. And he prayed. And as he was nervously walking around the room, he said that a force that he can't explain moved his hand, and he felt that the person in that casket was somebody that died next to him in battle, that he'd known the man, and he selected the unknown soldier. A few, the, the, the body was then taken to La Havre, France, where it, it boarded the USS Olympia. The Olympia was the famous battle cruiser in Admiral Dewey's fleet during the Spanish-American War. It still exists to this day. It's, it's in Philadelphia. It, it was used to transport the body back to the United States. It was lashed to the top, and it wasn't an easy voyage. It was, there were rough seas, and remarkably, the, 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 the casket almost went overboard on the, on the voyage. 
makes it back to the Washington Navy Yard on November 9th. The photo on the front of the book is it captures that exact scene of the Olympia coming into the to the Washington Navy Yard in these body bearers, the eight men that I described in this book, bringing back the remains. They take it to the Capitol Rotunda where it lies in state. Tens of thousands of Americans visit. President Harning attends. President uh, Pershing is there. The body bearers once again come back on November 11th, the day that the war ended in World War I. And the remains, the casket is brought back down on the same um, caisson that carried President Lincoln after his assassination. And it was, the, the body was escorted, uh, to Arlington Cemetery. And this is an extraordinary ceremony. The Medal of Honor recipients from all of America's wars that were alive, many of them were present. Many of the Civil War veterans were there that had won the Medal of Honor, or received the Medal of Honor. Spanish American War veterans. Sergeant York was in the procession, um, and many others. And then the body bearers were, were carefully guiding uh, the casket towards Arlington Cemetery, where um, where where it was being it was about to be interned. That there were actually, there's actually soil from France that was brought back, and um, the body was. There were many people that spoke. President Harding spoke. It was one of the first times that um, technology was used to broadcast his speech nationwide. It was not by radio. It was by they used a system called the Bell Teletalkie, which was a um, it amplified um, his speech over telephone, and it went around the country, and people were able to listen. And the body was slowly lowered into the ground, and remarkably, the unknowns and the unknown soldier. It was about closure for the Great War, but it was also about healing for the in the United States. Thomas Saunders was a Native American, but the last person to speak was Chief Plenicus, who was a Native, was an American Indian, a war chief, that says some words and places his his war staff and bonnet on top of the unknown, as the dirt from France is is placed into the into the tomb and the unknown is buried. The book is about history in plain sight. It's about who we are as Americans. It's about a forgotten generation, the World War I generation. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to answer your questions. That was wonderful. Uh, we have a microphone, I think, and so I'd ask you if you have a question to raise your hand. Uh, if you have an affiliation, you can say it and then uh, ask your question. We're broadcasting online. So uh, questions, please. Yes. Hi, my name is Benjamin Marsh. I'm with the Heritage Foundation. Um, it's been 100 years, uh, more or less, since June 28th when uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. How do we apply these experiences of these men at the onset of, of this modern warfare to uh, international policy going forward and how uh, we treat warfare nowadays? I think that the there's a lot there's a number of important things with this event. This is the 100th anniversary of 1918. 
that where America's involvement literally changed the course of history. And these individuals themselves were responsible for that. So much of, of World War I, the modern world, it's the change between the old world and the modern world. The world was remade in World War I. Uh, countries were, were changed. The entire Middle East was was basically the Ottoman Empire was carved up into the countries that we know now today as Iraq and Syria. Those same fault lines are as are ever present. I mean, you look at the, um, the president of France when he came here, he brought a small sapling from Bella Wood to represent the American sacrifice during the Great War. But I think there's so much that is of our world is still under the shadow of World War One, and it's something that we, it's the history that we don't even realize in many cases. The world was remade from this event, and so much flows from it. And just my, my, the thing that really struck me is the, this generation is, is a forgotten generation, and my goal with the unknowns was to sort of bring it back to life in some way, to bring back the spirit of that generation and the sacrifices that they made, on, and so that other, the Americans could appreciate it and recognize it on this 100th anniversary. But I think there's so much that we can learn from that war and that it, that applies to this day. I mean, this is, the the um, the, the Great War changed my life. It, it almost killed me in Fallujah and the men that I was with. And that was the thing that I found so striking was as we were walking Bella Wood that this was, it was an event that almost, that almost took our, all of our lives. Many of the men were part of the Wounded Warrior Regiment, so they lost limbs and arms and legs, and they were barely able to amble around the shell holes. And it was it was this sort of meeting of these two generations and the recognition of, the re realization that the generation of Marines that I was in Fallujah with, their stories are very, most Americans don't have any idea of, the, of that personal, those personal stories, except for the families and those who were there. My name is David Hammond. I'm with the World War One Centennial Commission. Oh, great. So I thank you very much for what you're doing to help bring back to life the forgotten generation and their forgotten war uh, that we try to... Uh, thank you for what you're doing. I mean, it's really important, and especially your efforts at Pershing Park, which is right down the street, to, to, to provide a real physical memorial for this generation. It's an extraordinary effort that I fully support. Well, thank you. We're still struggling to raise money, so for all that are listening and everybody here, you can go to our website, look at a treasure trove of information and education material, look at the progress of our memorial and the things that we're doing. My question, um, I haven't read your book yet. I'm looking forward to, to reading it soon. And when Pershing selected the, the, the pallbearers for this, did he know them personally? Or were they selected by ref references from their staff? Was there a selection criteria? How did this come about? Was it just chance? It wasn't chance. And what you find is that there was a deliberate selection to be fair. Pershing had a, a sort of an innate fairness about him. He, he wanted to make sure that all the units that had fought in France had recognition. There was a concerted effort to make sure that each of the branches of service were recognized. The... Um, the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps um, all selected individuals, but it was Pershing that made the final decision. And in several cases, he actually knew the men personally. And this is this is a, 
especially true with Samuel Woodfill, who he had knew, known personally, who um, he said was one of the most decorated and extraordinary doughboys of that generation. And Jansen as well, these two had both met in France and several of the other body bearers. So there was a personal connection in some cases, but it was also, you know, the branches themselves that, that, that selected these individuals. And there was even a, a height requirement. They wanted men to be at least six feet high. But they all had, um, in most cases, a an extraordinary field record in some way. And they told, they had a story to tell. Each one of these men had an incredible story to tell. It'd be at James Delaney, you know, fighting off a U-boat for hours in his American DOS boat experience, to Ernest Jansen leading a one-man bayonet charge against, you know, 15 German soldiers that disrupted the machine guns that were about to take Hill 142, or Harry Taylor, who was part of the the mounted troops in the 91st Division, the Wild Westerners, as they were called. And this is one of my favorite stories that I really didn't get into in this book, in this discussion, I should say. And the 91st was men from the West. They included, um, you know, cowboys and ranchers and hunters, and even some, like, members of the nascent film industry, um, all kind of dumped into one unit and the you know, this is Western manhood that had to, that came together and forged really a, quite a remarkable unit. It was staffed by uh, NCOs like like Taylor, who had been in the Army for many, many years and literally was a cowboy, born in the saddle practically, spent most of his time in, in Yellowstone in, 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 the West, in, in the West. And they they, they formed the 91st, and they, um, they have to ch- take a, a town called Gessney, which is a forward position on the Hindenburg line, heavily defended. The Germans have the entire position, um, you know, with interlocking fields of fire from machine guns, there's artillery. And, you know, one of the things I didn't really get into quite a bit yet in in this discussion was the gas. And this is persistent. Um, Many of these men had to sleep in their gas masks as they fought just to survive. And the gas was... You know, phosgene gas and then something called mustard gas, which is oily droplets that got inside your clothes, literally made you itch all over, potentially take your mask off, which would be, you'd be hit then by the phosgene, um, as you were taking your mask off, if you were, you know, foolish enough to do that. But can you imagine fighting through, you know, World War One combat with no peripheral vision, your nose and your mouth sweating as you're going through, you know, these positions and somehow hoping to survive? under a torrent of lead from machine gun bullets and heavy artillery. And then there's the, you know, the persistent, just the lice and all the other things that go, vermin that go along with living in the field for weeks on end. It's an extraordinary story of, you know, Americans that in many cases did not have any um, any formal training. The tactics that they were given in many cases were outdated they were, they were at the beginning of the war at Bella Wood, for instance, the Marine Corps charges in Civil War formation because the French ordered them to into the teeth of machine guns. They learn infiltration tactics. They learn modern combat infantry assault tactics because it's what it's the only way to survive. And they learn to combine artillery, airplanes, and even the tank as the war goes on, combined arms, fighting, 
and the what morphs is this this war this this nineteenth century army that the United States and, and Marine Corps that they have into a modern army and a modern fighting force, and it's the beginning of an American century. Yes. Kylie with Regnery Publishing. Um, I just wanted to know, like, how long did it take you to research this? And what was um, a, a favorite story that you uncovered that really surprised you or you just no, never knew about before? Uh, sure. The um, the book really started in 2010. And I've written, I write multiple books at once, which is really hard to do. So, <laughs> yeah, my mind doesn't really work too well between the American Revolution and World War One. So I would I would find myself, like, Pretend, you know, it was almost like being um, in World War One, where you had to ship like elements of the German army from the Eastern Front all the way over the Western Front. So I, my mind would work on the revolution for six six months, and then I would shift over to World War One, and I'd be fully immersed. I I really I, I get into the books that I write. I, I do a lot of research. I do my own research. A lot of it was uh, national archives as well as other archives around the world. And, um, you know, I get into the weeds. I also, um, I, I, I collected the uniforms, helmets, gas masks, um, implements of war, uh, trench knives, all these things. And literally the, my, one of my rooms in my house is filled with all these World War I implements. And I, you know, I really get immersed in, in the, uh, in the minutia and the weeds. And, um, that's the story that I try to tell in the unknowns. It's a it's a boots on the ground story of the of these enlisted men, and uh, it puts you there. That's that's I've had so you know many um, fine compliments from people that have read the book that said you know I really felt like I was I was there. Um, and that, you know this is it's a pretty extraordinary set of stories, and it's an extraordinary generation that you know um, one of the tomb guards, former tomb guards, said to me like you you resurrected. That generation, and that was for me a great honor. It was a great honor that they also, um, the Society of the Tomb Guards, as well, you know, these former Tomb Guards have embraced this book, and I'm deeply honored and touched by that because they're some of America's finest. One more question? Yes. Yeah. Hi, I'm Julian. Uh, I'm with the Washington Times. Um, I wanted to know. If you have a thought about this, why do you think it is that all these stories haven't really been told as of yet? You know, I, I, I think that there's so many stories that are just hidden. It's history hidden in plain sight, and I don't mean that in a cliche way. It's, it's a sign. I mean, it's it's the it's the Marylanders, Thermopylae that saved the United States in Brooklyn. There's so much history that we don't even recognize. And what I like, what I guess I specialize in is just, is I, these things find me. And then I take that little thread and I put it together and, and tell the larger story of whatever it is. In this case, it's the unknowns. And, you know, in the case of uh, the Navy SEALs, for instance, the Omni Shoreham Hotel's pool was the largest indoor pool in 1942. Nobody cared about that until, you know, I realized after doing a lot of archival research, that in 1942, the first operational rebreather was tested there. And the men that formed the OSS operational, 
the OSS Maritime Unit, the precursor to the Navy SEALs, were all born in that pool, in that demonstration. So it's taking, you know, sort of this, the story that's hidden in plain sight and in looking deeper. And I just think there's so many stories, especially with this, with World War One. And I, you know, my, for me, it's been kind of a crusade to, to tell people about this, this Doughboy generation that, which remade the world. I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. I think the stories are extraordinary. It's not, people have this conception of what, you know, the trench warfare was, et cetera. It's deeper than that. There's more to it than that. There's the courage. There's the sacrifice. There's the minutia. There's, it's, it's digging deeper into that story. The stories are the stories. You have one more? Please join me in thanking our speaker. I think we have. Okay. One more? We have one more. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and anything more you would want to say about Arlington National Cemetery, even beyond the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and um, uh, the, the descendants of those that uh, died in World War One that actually were remembered? Uh, have you had uh, much opportunity to meet with them? I have. Um, you know, many of the, I've just gotten countless emails and people that have come up to me and say, you know, thank you for remembering our my great-grandfather's generation or my father's generation in some cases. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, that's, that's the most touching thing. And I think, you know, as far as Arlington goes, that, that's our most hallowed ground. Um, you know, every time I go to Arlington, I'm just so deeply moved. And then you just, you, you look at the, uh, cemetery itself. And then there's the realization that every one of those crosses or a memorial, those plaques, they represent a person and a unique story. And sadly, you know, many of those stories, they never told their family. Um, you know, my book, this is one of 11, but I've interviewed 5,000, well, 4, at least 4,000, at least 4,000, nearly 4,000 World War II veterans. And my crusade there was to preserve and share those stories before they were lost. And this is something that all, all Americans have, in many cases, they have a, a family member that has a connection to um, to Amer the, our fighting. And I think that those stories, it, trying to make that connection with your family member is the important thing, because these stories are just being lost every day. And they're just, you know, this is these are real American heroes, not the fake heroes that we see on TV. It's just people that were just regular people that, you know, in the case of like World War I generation, were, rose, you know, they were over, able to overcome amazing odds and overcome, you know, inferior equipment, poor tactics, and then really do an ex the extraordinary. And in, in many cases, defeat one of the greatest armies in the world at the time, the German army. Thank you. I'll be uh, signing books over off to the side. I'd love that.